0: Anyway, at the porch, so we're doing the porch liturgy today. At the porch, we've been, we finally made our way through the book of Ezekiel. Boy, you guys, that was a long book. And we've been starting our, in, uh, was that, October or something? We started our series um, in the book of Acts. And so uh, today we're just going to pick back up, uh, last week we were here, you know, did some other stuff, but uh, we're going to pick back up our series in the book of Acts. So we're in Acts 2. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there or flip there in your... Bible app or whatever. We're going to read 242 through 47 today. Um, let me just open us up um, with a word of prayer, a prayer of illumination. It says, Lord, you know what distracted hearts we have. Help us to see you. You know what hard, dead hearts we have. <clears throat> and so touch and awaken us, You know how we resist your word, and our our fallen nature is reluctant to bow to your will. Therefore, O Lord, show forth your power, send your spirit on high to work among us, make our hearts submissive to you, and ourselves capable of living in true union with you. (coughs) Our salvation, and yielding totally with your grace. Amen. Amen. All right, so I like lists. Am I like, does anybody else like that? Like to make a list? What are we gonna do? I don't know, let's make a list. I'm one of those guys. I like things to be in order. I like, I drive Melissa nuts because I'm always moving everything in our house. Oh, that thing was three inches in the wrong place and now I can sleep at night because it's in the right place. And um, <clears throat> you know it's my favorite is okay you know when you have to leave the city for some reason and it's horrible and then you have to go to like some other place where all they have is like chilies you know what i mean and uh so so between driving to here and the place that has the chilies uh you drive past uh, we don't have a lot of these here but they're called trees and you drive past those orchards on they have them like on highway 80 and some other places but where all the trees are perfectly lined up in these rows and when you're driving fast you see the you know, that effect that it makes when you're going past each and every row, you guys, that's my favorite. Pump that into my veins, you know. (laughs) I love, oh, it's so good. That's one of my favorite. I think that's because how my brain works. I like everything in those rows. I found out recently, by the way, that some of these fancy tractors have GPS, And that's how they plant these rows so perfect they also not just with trees you see it in like lines of cabbage on the ground or whatever oh it's it's so fantastic i just like things to be in order today we're going to have a sermon i think that's kind of like one of those rows like the one of those orchards okay we have got a lot of rows that we've got to get through and i think that's because the way my brain works is i look at a text and i go oh look at these I just start making lists right as I start breaking apart a text. So this is going to be a a sermon that's full of lists. Right. This is a BuzzFeed sermon. You guys know BuzzFeed. (laughs) This is top ten reasons. Except. okay. Um, but here's the thing. While we're flying down the highway, we're going to look at this text and I'm going to give you uh, a bunch of sermon points here. I don't want you to remember every sermon point. I want you to think about the orchard, think about the whole thing. But we're going to see all these different lines but we're kind of going to fly through. Does that make sense? So with that said, we're going to have 16 markers of the early church, 16 things we can learn from the early church from this very short little text. Um, And what I want you to see is that these 16 things put them together and we have this beautiful orchard. We have this beautiful church that we can read about. Um, I want to give you a little context because a lot of you guys haven't been with us through the first couple of sermons through the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter one, Jesus takes off, ascends into heaven, leaves his people with a mission. So they, one of the first things they do is they replace Judas. They pick the new guy. Let's roll some dice, Matthias. You're the guy. It's a long story. And um, then they get to praying and they're hanging out and they're praying and Acts chapter two opens up and the spirit falls on them. And, All of Acts chapters, like one through six. So we're doing Acts in a couple of different parts. So we're going to do one through six and a half, and then we're going to break and do something else and then get back to Acts later on. But this whole section that we're in, the way it's portrayed is kind of a a rivalry between two temples, right? There's the temple in Jerusalem and there's the new temple, this people of God. And so at Pentecost, what happens is God comes down on this people and these tongues of fire, like the fire that inhabited the temple when Solomon built the temple, it rests on each person. And so each of these people now is the temple of God, and together they're this new temple. And so they start speaking in tongues, and Peter gets up and gives this wonderful, magnificent sermon. <coughs> Sorry, I've, had, I've been coughing since before Thanksgiving. Um, don't worry, I'm not contagious, doctor said. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, Jesus stuff. Um, so this new temple, <coughs> this new people of God, they get together, the fire falls, and then Peter gives this beautiful sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith. And so that's where we're kind of now. All of a sudden, he planted this church that he thought was going to be 120 people. And Peter is now, and these apostles are the pastors of a church of 3,000 people living in Jerusalem. So what does this early, early, like the very earliest church look like? That's what we've been talking about. So last week we did only 242, right? That one verse we just, we talked about those four things and sort of the liturgy of the early church. Um, today, we're going to read the rest, this whole section here. But what I want to do is the same warning I gave last week, um, but for those of you that weren't there. I said, with the early church, there's kind of two mistakes that people make. The first mistake is they pretend like this early church was perfect. And we have to do everything exactly like the early church did it because they were all perfect. But then you read about the early church and they were anything far from perfect. All right, fast forward a few chapters and, you know, there's a dispute about, oh, these um, Hebrew widows are getting more help than the ones who aren't, you know, the Hellenist widows, right? That seems like a pretty big problem to have in a church. Um, and so this early church wasn't perfect. But at the same time, the other mistake that people read or do when they're thinking about the early church is they think we're perfect, right? That we've figured everything out. We've got nothing to learn from these guys. And I think that's far from true. And so what we want to do is look at this with fresh, <coughs> sorry with fresh eyes and try to see what can we learn from this early church? Right. So we're going to read, uh, you can throw that slide. up. All of a sudden it's hitting me. Um, you can throw that slide up there. We're going to, I'm going to read this section. Okay. So those are not verse numbers. Those are our 16 things. Okay. Ready for this. And then we're going to fly through these. So it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising god and having favor with all the people and the lord added to their number uh, day by day those who were being saved all right so here we go you ready i got 16 as i wrote as i took this passage i wrote down 16 things and it could have actually been more, but I thought, boy, if you do a 24 point sermon, people get mad, you know, so here we go. Here's our 16 things. The first one is number one. You can just follow along with the numbers there. The first one is I said they have a liturgy. They had a liturgy. Um, I'm not going to beat this one to death because we did a whole sermon on this last week. Um, so I lumped all four of these together. So that would make me have a few less points. Um, but look at the beginning here. Um, they, Uh, devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those were the four things that they were all about. The apostles taught scripture, the people spent time together in fellowship, they participated in the sacraments together, and they prayed and they worshiped. That's what a Sunday looked like, right? Okay, so that's our first one. That's our first marker. It wasn't just sort of a free-for-all when they showed up. They showed up with a purpose and a plan and they did something together and these were the things that they did. All right, here's our second marker. And awe came upon every soul. So awe is like the fear. You know, we get the word awesome. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the sense of wonder and amazement. These folks had just seen Pentecost. They had seen this amazing miracle, the speaking in tongues. And a big chunk of these people, 120 of these people, or, you know, maybe even more than that at this point, um, had seen the risen Jesus. They'd spent time with Jesus, eating, talking, uh, learning from him, you know, it says in uh, the end of Luke that he was teaching them about the kingdom of God, and so here we are in this early church, and they still have this sense of awe, this sense of wonder, this sense of amazement, and it leads me to ask, why is our churches why are our churches so regular? Think about that for a second. What are we doing when we gather? We are gathering <clears throat> as the special people who are. Uh, called to be children of God, called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we come together on a Sunday, um, we are engaging in eternal things. What we do here, what's the gladiator line? Isn't that gladiator? Echoes into eternity or something like that? Okay, but what we're doing here actually does. Um, Last week, the Niners lost on Christmas Day and terrible, absolutely terrible. But you know what? In a million years, I'm not going to care. Okay. Um, So why wasn't I in a bad mood all week, (laughs) right? Because I was engaged in something that was very temporary. Instead of focusing my mind on the eternal things, the infinitely holy God. When we gather together as churches and as a church, you know, as the church, We are engaging. Think about this for a second. We are engaging in relationships that are eternal. In a billion years, we're going to hang out. We're going to have coffee and we're going to go. Remember, we used to live in San Francisco, like in that other life. And so what we're doing here is looking forward to eternity. And if we really come to a Sunday and come to our relationships and the time that we spend together with that perspective, I think we'll have a little bit more of this sense of wonder that the early church had that we're missing. But what we do is you guys know those Okay. So the Bay area, I swear, we have the worst drivers everywhere. Um, uh, and I think most of the drivers here do this. They look right in front of the car. You ever see these guys, you know, they're not looking down the road while they're driving. I think that's how most of us are living life too. We're just looking right out the windshield at the road right in front of us and we're trying to dodge potholes and we're not looking at anything down the road. But if we do, I think that's where we'll get some of this awe and wonder. All right, that's our second one. Our third marker, <clears throat> miracles. So the specific words that we see here, um there's two, signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. A wonder <clears throat> is <clears throat> I like they use two different Luke uses two different words to describe what's going on here. A wonder is something you look at and you just go, "Whoa." No way. So that's the first, they would heal. Somebody would get healed or this miracle would happen. And um, that was the first reaction. People would just go, whoa, they'd be blown away by it. The second word though, that they use, that Luke uses is more specific. It's a word he picked up. uh, John uses this word all the time in the gospel of John is the word signs. And the idea of a sign is it points to something else. So this miracle is the miracle is not the main thing. The miracle is a pointer to something, or if we're being more specific to someone, Right? These miracles were not supposed to be the main show. The miracles were pointing to Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God here on earth. And these people in this early church and us, right, we live in these two overlapping worlds. We live in the fallen and broken world. At the same time, we have one, more, one foot in eternity and uh, in a world where eventually brokenness and suffering will be gone. But we still live in a world with brokenness and suffering. And the kingdom of God, what happens in that overlap is we get glimpses of the way the world is supposed to be. And that was the point of these miracles. Jesus, when he was healing people, what he was doing is he was putting people back the way they're supposed to be. He's he's giving people glimpses of the way the world is supposed to be before the fall, glimpses of eternity. And the apostle seems to have picked up this habit of healing people to show them what the world will eventually be we we'll notice as we read the book of acts nobody ever heals somebody and then goes yeah that's right look how dope i am i'm healing people i'm peter fall at my feet right every time we'll read the next one next week we'll read chapter 3 they're going to heal the guy at the temple and then in 2 weeks we'll read the sermon <clears throat> we'll read the text into a sermon on peter's sermon Uh, sorry, Peter's sermon when the crowd rushes. And what he says in that sermon is, you guys think I healed this dude? I don't think so. Right. Jesus healed this guy. And let me tell you about this Jesus. And he gets into a whole sermon. So the question then also now, so this is what they were doing in the early churches, does this, do these kind of miracles still happen? I'll give you, there's three camps. The first is there's no, this was only for the apostles and the founding of the church, not buying it. The second is, yes, these happen all the time and we should have services like Benny Hinn and we should hit people with our jackets. You guys know those videos? Am I the only one that's seen this video where they take the Benny Hinn hitting people with his jacket and they turn it into lightsabers and he's chopping them in half? Anyway, okay, so there's like the crazy Benny Hinn people. And then the third option is, yeah, we pray for people to be healed all the time, but we don't expect it like Benny Hinn does and we don't make it the center of everything we do. And, um, In that last perspective, the miracles aren't the key takeaway, the, the miracle, somebody being healed in a church setting. And I've seen this, you know, I have a, a buddy who had this miraculous healing when I was a kid. And that healing was part of how I came to faith. But the reason was because he never said, Oh, look it, I'm Bill. Look how great I am. I'm healed. He was, it was always a sign pointing to Jesus. Right? And so the, the sign pointing to Jesus is the main thing. And so we do, like James said, we, we pray for people to be healed and we do so in faith right, and trusting the Lord. But there's other ways that we can be signs in the same way. We live humble and loving lives in the way that the people around us don't. That's also other ways that we can be a sign that points to Jesus. And so I think with this miracles one, the key is not the miracle. The key is they were doing things that were pointing people to Jesus. They were doing things that were signs. All right, here's the fourth one, leadership. Okay, so in the early church, they had leaders. These leaders were, it wasn't just a big free-for-all group. There were certain people that the group got together and said, these these guys are our leaders. In the early, early church, the founding of the church, these were called apostles. Um, I said this last week, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I said, um, if you ever go to a church and the pastor's name is on the church van, don't go to that church. (laughs) The second thing is if it's on the pastor's name is on the van and it says that, uh, Reverend, Dr. Apostle, whatever, don't go to that church either. Right? So these 12, these apostles, there was 12, there was Barnabas, there was Paul, there were a couple extras, right? These guys were like the founding leaders of the church. We don't have apostles anymore. That's not an office. We have elders, we have deacons. Um, so we still have these kind of leadership. Again, we talked about this a little last week, so I'm not going to, I'm going to kind of fly over this one, but, One thing I want to say is leadership in the church, especially as you guys are voting next week, is upside down leadership. This is not top down, do what I say. These leaders are supposed to be the key servants in the church. So we're not just looking for A type personalities and great public speakers, right? We're not just looking for the best looking people among us. Although you guys, I can't help that. That's, you know, Um, we're looking for, just kidding. As I say, we need humble leaders, right? Uh, (laughs) We're looking for the folks who are willing to do anything. Right? We're looking for the guys who are willing to, um, to serve and to love more than the other people. And so this is important, especially in the phase that kind of I know Petra folks aren't here today, but it, all of our churches are in. You guys are voting next week. Petra is going to be picking leaders soon. We're moving into a phase where we're going to have more leadership and membership and that sort of stuff. And so as we do it, we need to keep in our mind not American business leadership, We need to keep what is spiritual upside down kingdom leaders. Who's who are the people that are pushing themselves to the bottom so that they can serve the most people? That's who we're looking for with these leaders. All right. The fifth one is they had unity. It's sad that churches today are more known for not getting along than they are known for getting along. And this idea of unity is so important that Jesus prayed for this in the high priestly prayer, right? This is from John 17. He prayed that praying for us that they may be one, just as you father are in me and I in you. We're supposed to be one. We're supposed to be united as churches and as, you know, as churches separately and inside each church, the congregations are supposed to be united. We see it here in that they were all together. They had this unity in the early church. They all got along. Um, This is one of the reasons I'm excited about the partnership with our different churches. I think we're trying uh, to display this kind of unity. We're all pretty different churches. Um, I mean, truthfully, with Josue's church, with Petra, we don't even all speak the same language right? in our services. But we want to have this unity because this unity shows the world that the things that they care about is not necessarily the things that we care about. We care about eternal things. We care about gospel things. And the rest of that stuff that normally divides people, eh, who cares? right? That's not what we're about here. So we want to have this kind of unity. And when you get a bunch of people together, you're going to have people from all different walks of life. And when you get people from all different walks of life into like a church family, you're going to have to have our sixth thing, which is our mercy ministry. Look at this. It says they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now notice how in my list of things here, I called this mercy ministry and not they were all all a bunch of commies, right? Um, I heard a pastor put it this way once, right? Communism is kind of more like what's yours is mine. And the early church is the flip of that. It's what's mine is yours, right? It's sort of this open, let's take care of each other. And we'll read how this all in the book of Acts as we continue, we're gonna read how this went along and the problems that this caused. But let me say a few things about this. Um, the first is look at what they did. They sold property to take care of each other. That's a pretty big deal. Um, they provided for the needy among them. We'll read about in a couple chapters, the food that was provided and the, 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 um, for the widows, right? The people who really couldn't take care of themselves. Um, the other thing we'll notice is this was all voluntary. So when we get to the Ananias and Sapphira part, where they lie about what they did and then they fall down dead in front of Peter, that's the miracle nobody likes to pretend that we do in church anymore. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but Peter was like, wasn't it your property to sell or not? Dude, like, what, what's going on here, man? Nobody's making you do this. So we know it was voluntary. Um, the third, uh, the next thing is we know it didn't also didn't really work um, the way that they did this. Because a couple of chapters later, we're going to read that poverty becomes such a problem in the church in Jerusalem that the rest of the churches are pitching in to help the church in Jerusalem. And we also know that all these other churches didn't do it exactly like this either. And so the way that this played out was different probably from church to church. But the idea of let's take care of each other is a pretty solid idea without being super dogmatic and rigid about what that looks like. And so sometimes in a church, there's, like most churches, will have some sort of a formal, like we have a benevolence fund. People give into that money and we help people pay bills, that sort of stuff. Other times it's more informal. But the idea is we take care of each other because we're family. And we see that here in the early church also like a family we spend actual time together that's our seventh one they had a real time commitment with each other look at this it says in day by day you know what that phrase means it means every day it means day by day you guys there's no greek thing that means it's just wednesdays <laughs> you know sorry um <clears throat> think about how often you see your you know like if you like my wife and kids you know when i see them every day Uh, almost every day, unless I'm traveling or something, but pretty much I spend every day with them all the time. You guys, they never leave. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't look at me. Um, One thing that every leadership book, that uh, some course I was in that I didn't want to be in and they made me read a leadership book, uh, every one of these leadership books says something along the lines of that, your true priorities uh, show up in how you spend your time right? Because you you only have a limited amount of time and bad leaders spend a lot of time on the things that aren't that important. And good leaders spend a lot of time on the things that are important. And I think that's true, not just for leaders, but for all of us, how we spend our time. And I would say money too, from the last one, but how we spend our time, especially reflects what's going on in our hearts, our heart level priorities. Um, In the American church, there's a lot of studies that people have done over the years about how much how little Americans actually care about being with other church people like American Christians care about being with other church people. And, you know, I was Googling some of this, I found a bunch of conflicting studies, but they all kind of had a similar, you know, one I saw said, the average American church member attends church three out of five weeks, Uh, small groups, it gets even less. There's again, a lot of studies, but they all hover around about 30% of American church members. So not just people who go to church, like church members are involved in some kind of small group. Basically, the way that we do church reflects, doesn't reflect this early church at all, in their level of time commitment. And one of the reasons is because, um, one sort of plague I've seen in the early church, I'll steal this illustration from my pastor back in the day, is we're very, we're, he called us, what was it? um, TV dinner Christians. You guys remember TV? You guys have the TV dinners? Okay, you got your Salisbury steak, right? It's always Salisbury steak. Something green, but you're not 100% sure what it is. The mashed potatoes, but it's really more like soup. And then the peach cobbler, right? And they each have their own compartment and they don't touch each other. And they have the dividing walls inside the TV dinner. And he says, that's how, my pastor used to say, that's how we live as Christians. We compartmentalize our lives. I've got my church over here. That's the little compartment. That's Sunday mornings. My work and family are the two biggest ones. My hobby is the peach cobbler that's over here and we don't let them mix together. And I think that shows the priorities of our heart. The Acts Church really understood what it meant to be brought into the family of God, that we're actually a family and we spend a lot of time together and they were with each other all the time and okay so they spent a lot of time together great what did they do when they hung out Uh, it seems that they had two ways of gathering that's our next two points so this time level commitment looked like two things the first was they had large gatherings so they attended that's our eighth thing large gatherings they attended temple together Um, the early church and this is more of a sermon for down the road in the book of acts but they didn't make a hard break with the temple system So they still showed up and the early earliest church was all devout Jewish people who were at Pentecost and they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the old temple, the old Testament law. And so they didn't, I think at the beginning, they didn't quite, they hadn't processed through what does this look like? And so they were still going to temple and, but again, that's a sermon for another day. The idea though is that they had these large gatherings at the temple. So in Acts chapter five, we read the place that they met was called in the ESV, which is the version I'm using here. It's called Solomon's portico. In other translations, they call it Solomon's porch. Um, it's also where Peter will give his sermon in the next chapter. Um, it seems like this is the place where the church met for the, the, the large gathering of three and a half thousand people at the very beginning. Um, this is why our church is called the porch. Uh, Kind of a stupid name, but I mean, this is where I got it from, right? Um, The porch is the first place where they all met and did the liturgy of 242. They would do a teaching, fellowship, sacrament, prayer, and worship. They wanted to meet the whole group all at the same time. This is where it happened, at Solomon's porch. And Solomon's porch was a section of the temple that was in the outer part of the temple where Gentiles, anybody could meet. And it was this large hallway, basically, with these columns on one side. And so in the heat of the day, the sun would be coming down and hitting the ceiling. So you could be in the shade and it was a nice place to hang out. And it was big enough to hold three and a half thousand people, but it was also on the way that you're walking into the main part of the temple. So everybody going in for prayer and going in for whatever would have to walk past Solomon's porch and they would look over and they would see three and a half thousand people singing worship songs about Jesus. And they would go, I wonder what that's about. And I think this is one of the ways that the early church grew. Now, talking about this, this large gathering, I think this is important because there's this idea out there that goes, um, you read this in books and stuff, it goes, we should be like the early church and the early church, what they did was they met in houses and this model of American church where we meet in Sundays, that's not how they almost disparage the way that, you know, we kind of do church. And then I open a back church and I see the first thing that we see is the church is meeting in a gigantic group of 3,500 people. I'll be honest, I'm not a mega church guy. I'm not a let's go to the church and take the shuttle from the parking lot to the church kind of guy. You know, I prefer smaller churches. But I'm, there's nothing wrong with a big giant church because this is what the early church did, right? So I don't want to be the small church planter that's like, oh, reality's the devil or whatever because they're bigger than we. No, that's a great, you know we have in all different kinds of churches for all different kinds of people. Um, <clears throat> so like these guys, though, the main idea is that we should prioritize getting our whole church together at once. We should prioritize Sunday gatherings. Then, <coughs> so you're sorry, you probably hear me say that and go, great, I can show up on Sunday. I can sit in the back and that's good enough. And that's what John said. The problem with that is number nine. They also met in smaller fellowships. So at Pentecost, that church grew from 120 to 3000, uh, big giant, you know, that big giant group that would meet at Solomon's porch. Um, but if you've ever actually been to a church like that, the problem with it is I've been to big churches like that. I actually did go to a church once with, that was a joke, but I did do that once in Seattle. I took a shuttle from the parking lot to like the main building. I walked past the gym, the pool and the bookstore. I sat down, nobody said anything to me. And then I left. And there was no i mean it was great to be in that group of people worshiping but there was no community there and this is why it seems that what they did was they had smaller groups as well it says they they're breaking bread in their homes you can't get three thousand people into any house in jerusalem in the first century so clearly they broke up into these smaller groups and they got together and they ate which was a huge deal in this culture right eating wasn't just like hey you want to hit mcdonald's on the way home or whatever like it was a it was a communal Uh, It was a personal thing that they did together. And so again, what I don't want to do is be dogmatic. It doesn't tell us exactly what the format of a small group should look like. It doesn't tell us exactly what to do on a Sunday in a large group. That's why our liturgies are different. And I can make jokes about, you guys don't have the book anymore. It was more fun to make jokes when you would hand out that binder full of stuff to do on Sunday morning, you know, but our liturgies are different and that's fine, right? We're not dogmatic about this, but we kind of do the same thing. We meet in a bigger, you know, the bigger group, we meet in smaller groups, and we try to do fellowship and that sort of stuff. Um, And we just want to be in relationships where we can actually lean on each other and help each other grow. we want to purposefully put us put ourselves in those situations and into those relationships where we can't hide things and we don't get to be fake. All right. So number 10, then, as they're meeting in these big groups and these small groups, what was the attitude of these people? The first one is they had glad hearts, right? It says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So let's do glad first. Have you ever been around somebody who's always negative? It's exhausting. If you don't believe me, ask Melissa. She had to be around me this week after the Niners (laughs) lost. You guys, it was miserable. I know they're on right now. they Are winning? No. Okay. Don't tell me. I haven't looked. Uh, What was I? I got distracted? Oh, yeah, here we go. Um, but somebody who's always negative is exhausting. The flip side is also true. Somebody who's genuinely joyful, that rubs off. You ever tried to be in a bad mood around somebody who's in a great mood? (laughs) I feel like at first it's annoying and then they pull you along. That's the easiest way to get out of a bad mood is to be around somebody who's annoyingly happy. The early church was marked by having these glad hearts. They were grateful for the salvation they had received. And I think they had the attitude of, I can't believe that somebody like me received such a great salvation. And they really believed it. And then they were smiling sometimes about that and they were excited. And they were, they had, again, it's all about perspective with real perspective on eternity and that what we're dealing with here is eternal things and what the gospel really means. How can we not be joyful when we gather? But it says too, look at this, 11 and 12 here, uh, sorry, 10 and 11. So 10 was glad hearts, 11 is they received food with glad and generous hearts. So generosity, again, I could have lumped this in, but it was down the list here. They already, um, we already talked about this a little bit, but let me talk about perspective again. Generosity comes from perspective. Matthew in, um, sorry, Jesus in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where the moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You guys, we live in San Francisco. That hits a little harder now, doesn't it? Where thieves break your windows and steal. We were counting the last time. I think we we're up to nine or ten. We lost count. Times our house, our car, whatever has been broken into, and we've been robbed since we lived in, you know. Anyway, that's a lot, right? Because people steal stuff. But instead, don't. we shouldn't really care about that. We shouldn't care about the stuff on this earth. He says, Jesus says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So basically what Jesus says is generosity comes from perspective, comes from eternal perspective. The more that your heart is focused on the things of the gospel, the more generous of a person you would be. This is why I don't like when pastors get up and they give the guilt generosity sermon. The Bible says 10%, you turkeys. (laughs) You know, that's like, a just do it. Right, here's the thing. I want you to think about Jesus all the time and then do whatever happens next. And whatever happens next is going to be, you're going to be humble, you're going to be loving, you're going to be happy, and you're going to be generous. And the thing is, I think one of the things we don't really get in church is, I also want you to be super selfish. I want, you to be, I want you to think about what's best for you, but I want you to think about what's best for you in real perspective, that you are an eternal being. Not what's best for you right now, what's best for you thinking about that you were born whenever you were born. I was born 1984, what, 36 or something. And, uh, just kidding. This is how we show affection. We rag on each other. Anyway, so I was born in 84 and I'm going to live until forever. That's a long time. And the more I think about that, I'm going to live until forever, the less I care about the stuff that everybody else cares about right now. And I think about the Lord and then it turns me into a more generous person. And the more also speaking of perspective, we're up to number 12. Let's see. What am I time? Oh, yeah, we're going to make it Um, number 12. The more I think about eternal stuff and the more happy I am and the more generous I am, the more worshipful I will be. It says here, look at number 12, where is it? Um, And they were praising God. I love how simple that is. What a high calling. There's no more important activity that we can engage in as people who were created by God Almighty than to praise Him. And the essence of worship goes against everything in our society that says, you're the center of everything. You need to be true to yourself, and it's all about you. I grew up in school here in San Francisco Elementary School in the middle of what I'll call the self-esteem epidemic. Right? It was just, everything was about self-esteem, and everything that I was raised to believe was that, you know, you're just the best. I was like, yeah, I am the best. You know, then I grew up and I came to faith and I was like, oh, I am not the best. (laughs) Right. He is. And so with that perspective, what worship does is it takes the self-centered me and it focuses my attention somewhere else on somebody who actually deserves that worship. And it's really cool to do that by myself, sitting at the beach or something and praying. But, you know, what's even cooler than that is doing it in a room like this with the Bart train going by with a bunch of other people who have that same perspective, right? That's what worship is. We just get together and we all go, I am not so great, (laughs) but he is. And then Peter goes, yeah, yeah, I'm not so great either. (laughs) He is. And that's what we're all doing when we gather together and just seeing you guys do that too helps build in this perspective that I don't always have. Sometimes when I'm looking right in front of the road and I'm just thinking about myself and I'm all in my head and my feelings and I show up at church and I watch you guys worship, I go, oh yeah, this is what we're doing here. We're dealing with eternal things. And when a community like that gets together, we get to our 13th idea. It says, they had a good reputation. It says, and having favor with all the people. Do you guys know who Corey Ten Boom is? She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. If you've never read The Hiding Place, she get up and walk out of here right now. Don't even finish the sermon. Go no, go read this book. It's fantastic. She was a believer in, uh, one of the Nazi occupied countries. Anybody remember which one? Poland, Holland. And she hit a bunch of Jewish folks and got found out, ended up in a concentration camp and, um, she made it through, but her sister died and, uh, her sister's Betsy, I think. Anyway, these two were amazing. Well, she wrote a book um, called Tramp for the Lord was one of her other books. Anyway, so the other day I was on Reddit doing not eternal things and I was scrolling through <laughs> Reddit and I saw it was in the funny subreddit where it's supposed to be funny. And somebody posted a picture. Look at this stupid book I found in a thrift store. Oh, it's called Tramp for the Lord. Now, I don't know if you spent any time on Reddit, but here's the thing. They do not like us. Okay, anytime a Christian says anything on that website, they get lambat. You know, it's, it doesn't go very well. And this is not a Christ friendly kind of place. And this guy posted this book, and I clicked on it because I wanted to read the hateful comments. I wanted to see what they said. And then I clicked on it, and the Reddit horde that usually hates us jumped to Corey Ten Boom's defense. I couldn't believe what I was reading. And I kept scrolling to find the hateful comments, and they weren't there. I'm gonna read you a few of these comments. Bro, this is not the lady you want to make fun of. That was the top comment. <laughs> next one. Corey Tenboom is the real deal. Always walked it like she talked it. The next one. Her family hid Jews uh, in their home and they were caught. Corey's whole family died in concentration camp. She was released because of a clerical error, which is true. Rather than becoming bitter, she devoted her life and teaching to serving others. Anyway, I was reading these comments, and I was completely caught off guard. And then something dawned on me, because I was expecting the usual Reddit garbage. But then it dawned on me: oh, a Christian who actually lives like we're supposed to, had a serious impact on all these people who hate our guts. Corey Ten Boom had a very good reputation with outsiders, because she walked the talk. Yeah, and she did what we're supposed to do by living out her faith for real. I think if our churches make the gospel the main idea and we really do the things that the gospel calls us to do, we can have a reputation like that in San Francisco. People are going to hate us anyway. Let's be honest. Somebody hates Corey Ten Boom. Probably people are going to hate us, but if they do hate us, let, let them hate us for the gospel, not for all this other garbage that doesn't matter. Right? So let's, let's think about that. What's our reputation with outsiders? Um, It was fun to see at the, uh, you know, just to get out with folks at um, Sunday Streets a couple months ago. We were all just out there saying hi, talking to people, trying to, you know, what was the success of that? You know, I don't know. It was, we wanted to hang out with people and get the reputation of Christ in the city, right, to be up a notch. We're going to do the same thing in June, by the way. Uh, You guys are going to come. Trinity first, you guys are going to come help us at the North Beach Festival. We're going to do the same kind of thing again. But that's the main purpose of something like that, is we just want to have a good reputation in the city. All right, 14, we're getting close here. Ready? The next thing is, this one will be quick, membership. said, um, we're at the end here. Um, the Lord added uh, to their number. They had a number, right? I think this is important. All of our churches are in the early phases, and our leaders have to make decisions about what our churches will look like. And a lot of the ways that church plants go is church membership isn't really that important, but church membership is important. Being part of the family is important. It's like when a couple says, oh, I don't need a piece of paper to be in love. I go, okay, yeah, but you do to be married. You know, like that's how it works. (laughs) Membership is a group of people coming together and saying, we're gonna be a family. It's like signing adoption papers. You're joining a family and you're entering into a covenant we we always kind of say there's really only two covenants you join in this life right it's the covenant of marriage the covenant of membership right in a church and it's a big deal to say i'm giving myself to this church to serve and to love and to do what's best for your sanctification and i'm joining this church because i know that's what you guys are all going to do for me and so putting that on paper and saying these are the people that are our members and i'm submitting to our leadership and I'm agreeing to take care of the other people in our church is kind of a big deal. So at the porch, I'm saying all this because we're getting started with the phase of we're going to move towards membership probably this year. I don't know when you get what you guys are doing. He's looking at me like he hates membership. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I know you're doing leadership and you're getting that process rolling. And so together as a family, we're at 15. We're getting close. You guys, we need an intermission like um, in old movies like Cleopatra. You get to get up and uh, you know, have a little stretch. Okay, here we go. Number 15, they had a missional outlook and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church went from 120 people to completely taking over the Roman world in about 300 years and they did it without fighting wars. Isn't that crazy? Just through ideas and through faith, the church just grew. We did a a sermon a few weeks ago about the Great Commission we talked about all the different groups of people that were at Pentecost. And I I used a John Piper quote. I don't remember it exactly, but it went something like, um, missions exists because worship doesn't. And he said, uh, missions is not the main idea. Worship is. So we send missionaries and we do that sort of stuff because worship doesn't exist. We want everybody to worship. And I love that quote. That's so good. Our worship um, should be so central to who we are that we're willing to do anything to bring other people into that worship of God. And that's what a missional outlook is about. We want our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and the guy at the grocery store and our waiters and our baristas and all these people who don't know the Lord and don't know the joy of what it means to live in his kingdom. We want them to experience that. And so the main point is not to brag about how missional of a church we are. It's to think about worship and to love those people so much that it breaks our hearts that they don't experience that worship day by day. And then we're going to make big changes to make that happen. So at our church, we do, at the porch, we have our Pabst Blue Ribbon Outreach Pathway. And the way this works is it's just, what is it, pray for somebody, ask them about their lives, bless them in ways nobody else would, share your story with them, and then talk to them about gospel truth. And we talk about it constantly. Every sermon I bring this up, and we talk about our Pabst, the people we're engaging with and stuff. But the reason is because we're worshipful people, and we want them to be as well. All right, so that was our 15th. The last one is real quick. It's the 16th one. Um, it says those who were being saved. So the 16th idea is real discipleship. Um, notice how it doesn't say God saved a bunch of people and then they added them to the membership role. The grammar here in Greek is kind of important. It says they were being saved. They were in the, the process of salvation. Um, We did a whole two-part sermon at the beginning of December on the Ordo Salutis and what happened to the people who got saved at Pentecost. And so I'm not going to do that whole sermon again. But the idea is salvation is this process that, you know, begins at one point and ends in eternity. And we're all in this process of salvation. And what that means then is you're not done. And the role of your leaders and the role of your small groups and the role of your relationships with each other is to help each other grow into that salvation right? Is to grow into holiness and to help each other with sanctification. And church plays a huge role in you growing up in your faith. And that's what's going on here. They were being saved. It It was happening in this process. Okay. That's our 16 points. So then as I look at this list, the next question, the ending question is, how do we do this? How? How can I move the porch towards a church that looks like this? How can Chris and Drew lead Trinity first towards a church that looks like Acts 2, or Josue when he plants in a month and a half? The American Western go-getter individualist in me says, let's get to work. Let's write some sermons. Let's start some programs. Let's do stuff. And then I look at this list. You ever have a paper in college or something, high school, whatever? And you sit down to write it and you're like, I don't even know where to start. That's how I feel when I look at this, completely overwhelmed. I don't know how. I don't know how to take a bunch of self-centered sinners and turn them into other outward focused church family people. I don't know how to take people whose sin tells them, take all that you can and save for your retirement or whatever, and turn them into generous and glad people. I don't know how to take a people who think about themselves constantly and get them to worship somebody else. I don't know how to take a people who are obsessed with trivial things, like binge-watching HBO Max or whatever, and to get them to think more about spiritual, eternal things. I don't know how to do that. And you know what? That's okay. I don't know how. Drew doesn't know how. Even Chris doesn't know how. He's been a pastor for 100 years or whatever. <laughs> right, we don't know how. And we get together and we hang out. And you know what we talk about? We go, I don't know how. <laughs> I wish I did. I wish I knew better and I'm glad that the people don't know. Well, here's the, the secret behind the Wizard of Oz curtain. We, we don't know how. We don't know how to turn you into these kind of people. But here's what we do know. Gospel truth. And we know that it's not our job to transform you. It's our job to show up every Sunday and to hammer you with the gospel story and then stand back and watch and see if Jesus changes you. Those are two very different models of leadership. And so what we do is every week, Chris or Drew or I or Hostway or whoever stands up here and we tell you the same story. You're a sinner in rebellion against your creator. Born in sin, you love it. Right? We love our sin. And even though we've spit in the face of God Almighty and rebelled against him, this is the Christmas season. He became one of us. He grew up. He lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live. And the only person who never deserved to die, died a horrible death on the cross. But the horrible part wasn't even the cross, as bad as that is. It was the wrath of God being poured out on him in our place. And then through faith in his name and through his, because of his resurrection as the proof and the, the, the proof of payment and the, 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 The down payment on kind of our eternal life. Because of that, we put our faith in Him, and when God looks at you, He doesn't see the sinner that you are. He sees the perfect life that Jesus lived. And so, your salvation has nothing to do with how well you behave, it has to do with how well Jesus behaved. And then, through being united to Him because of that, we're transformed into the holiness that we don't have. We're transformed into this new life, into this new being, and we're sanctified. And so, every week, Chris, Drew, Josue, you know, one of us, we get up here and we tell you this story. The story of how wicked sinners like you and me can be saved from the judgment of God. And then you look around the room and you go, oh, that's how it works for everybody. That's how it works for Chris. it's how it works for me. And we're all just a bunch of losers <laughs> who are saved by this holy God. Pretty amazing. Wow, that makes me glad. That makes me joyful. That makes me want to spend more time with these losers, because they're just like me, and we've all received the same salvation. And so the, this whole sermon on all of these points, the point of this sermon is not to think about this stuff. Don't look at the individual lines going down the freeway. Think about the orchard, right? This group, this whole group, how do we become these people? is really, I mean, we don't try to be these people. We just try to think about our salvation and then see what happens. And when a group of people gets together with the awe of, I can't believe I have received this salvation, this is what it looks like. But when a group of sinners tries to be this, the American church is what it looks like. So maybe let's not try to be this. Let's try to just think about our salvation Let's try to think about the gospel and in our conversations, let's encourage each other with those truths and then let's just see what happens. And what happens is all of a sudden you're going to wake up one day and our churches are going to look like this and it's going to be pretty cool. Amen. All right, let's pray.